If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. If you add up the casualties of these various conflicts, you actually end up with a figure that is higher than the combined wartime casualties of Britain, France and the United States added together. That was Robert Gilwarth on the aftermath of the First World War. You can see the French Imperial Guard marching in, hopefully for Napoleon's victorious attack into the British lines. You can see in the distance the thin red lines. This is a very iconic image of British military glory, the the thin red lines firing their concentrated firepower into the ranks of the Imperial Guard. And that was Hugh Davis, on location at Apsley House, the Duke of Wellington's London home. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of September 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Robert Gilwarth, Professor of Modern History at the UCD Centre for War Studies. Robert is the author of a new book entitled The Vanquished, which explores how the end of the First World War failed to bring peace to much of Europe, which was racked by a series of revolutions, expulsions and wars. I spoke to Robert down the line a little while back to find out more. When would you say that the First World War actually ended? 
Well, that's a very good question. I think that the war most definitely didn't end on the 11th of November 1918. What I think is important to understand is that the war ended four different countries at different times. Um, for me personally, the end date would probably be um, late 1923, which is a point in time when most of the post-war conflicts or the continuation of violence after 1918 uh, definitely came to an end across Europe. Um, if you wanted you know, a more specific date, one could probably say with the conclusion of the Treaty of Lausanne, uh, others would probably argue that the economic stability or relative uh, economic stabilization of Europe at the end of that year uh, also helped to appease Europe, uh, which up until that point uh, had witnessed a, a huge variety of conflicts, some of them interstate wars, some of them civil wars, uh, some of them revolutionary or counter-revolutionary turmoil. Do you see these, these additional conflicts? Are they really part of the same war or is this actually separate conflicts? Well, none of them would have happened without the First World War. Uh, contrary to uh, the widespread perception, uh, Europe in 1914 was actually a remarkably uh, stable place uh, and remarkably peaceful place. So I think we need to think of the First World War uh, as, a, as a terrible war that uh, opened up Pandora's box and opened up the spaces for various apparently smaller conflicts. But if you add up the um, the casualties of these various conflicts, you actually end up with a figure that is higher than the combined uh, wartime casualties of Britain, France and the United States added together. So these are all extremely violent uh, conflicts. The most violent of all, of course, is the, the Russian Civil War, uh, which uh, in itself costs the lives of way more than three million people. So obviously one of the major things that happened in the First World War was that several empires, Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, Russian Empire, broke up. How important is that to the conflicts that follow? Well, I think it is quite central because the dissolution or collapse, implosion of empires uh, was not an allied war aim in 1914. This is something that uh, gradually develops towards the end of the First World War uh, when it does become a key demand. As a consequence of this breakup, of course, borders have to be redrawn. It has to be decided what is part of, say, Poland or Czechoslovakia or Hungary uh, or German Austria. And different population groups stake different claims on certain territories. This is one of the driving forces behind uh, the escalation of violence. But there's also the problem that many of the nation states uh, that emerge really want to be ethnically homogenous, but they're not. They're in fact many empires in themselves. Uh, there's only, there's been a reversal of ethnic hierarchies. So a lot of the, the conflicts that we see immediately after 1918, but then throughout the so-called interwar period and into the um, 1930s, 1940s, is a clash between that newly idealized vision of the mono-ethnic uh, community and the reality of living in, in highly complex, multi-ethnic, multi-religious uh, societies. Famously, Woodrow Wilson was very keen on this idea of self-determination for countries after the First World War, but did that actually exacerbate the situation? Well, Different players at the time understood the concept of self-determination in very different ways. Um, of course, Wilson 
had for the post-war European order a model in mind that very much uh, was the same as, as in the United States. And I think he underestimated the effects of his promise of, of self-determination. Um, he misunderstood the, the complexity of the ethnic complexity of Europe uh, and how dangerous such a promise uh, might be, and particularly if it was uh, interpreted along the lines of, of, of racial exclusivity. I'm just thinking about other possible factors in what's going on. I mean, around this time, you have clearly the communist revolution and the growth of these kind of really new revolutionary ideologies. How does that factor into what's going on? Well, I think 1917, the, the Russian Revolution, particularly the Bolshevik Revolution, uh, at the end of that year, is a real game changer in a number of ways. First of all, uh, we have to bear in mind that the European continent, in fact, much of the world, has been at war for several years. Uh, so these are war-weary societies that are, are ripe for revolution. And we, we basically see cracks in the foundation uh, in, in various of uh, various armies uh, that, are, that are fighting at the various fronts of the First World War. So we see mutinies, uh, we see clear indications that the home fronts uh, are no longer willing to uh, support the war in the way they, they did in 1914. So with the success of the of the Bolshevik Revolution, there is a, a model uh, which many people in various, particularly European societies, are aspiring to. They are inspired by the success of revolution in Russia. At the same time, you have large segments of uh, the population, again, in all European countries that are deeply skeptical, in fact, very hostile towards Bolshevism, and they want to prevent a repeat of the events uh, that happened in, in, in Russia at any cost, uh, which explains the ultra-violent nature of counter-revolution in various countries, even in countries where a Bolshevik revolution was highly unlikely. Around the time that we're talking about where this kind of continuing First World War, this is when the post-war treaties are essentially being negotiated and decided. Do you think they could have done a better job of preventing this violence? Well, there's a huge debate about the uh, the Versailles Treaty or the Paris Peace Treaties in, in general. And um, for a long time, I think historians have said that they did the best possible job in, a, in an impossible situation. What I think we have to remember is that the main powers present at the uh, Paris Peace Conference, the victors states of the First World War, came to the conference with very, very different expectations, uh, expectations that were often incompatible. Um, and so in that sense, the, the Paris Peace Treaties were always going to be a compromise peace, not a compromise between the victors and the vanquished, um, but rather a compromise between the victor states, the three principal victor states, the United States, the United Kingdom, and France. Um, but of course, from the vanquished point of view, so from the point of view of uh, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire in particular, uh, but also Bulgaria, the expectations in early 1918, only, you know, 10 months before uh, the war came to an end, the expectation was that victory was imminent, which is rather um, hard to imagine, of course, uh, from today's point of view or from the point of view of uh, November 1918. But after Russia's withdrawal from the First World War, uh, the Germans were actually able to transfer a significant number of troops to the Western Front, and they were hoping for a decisive battle uh, against the British and the French. And there was a strong belief within the German military leadership, uh, but also in the other central powers, that 
victory was imminent. After that, um, of course, many people bought into the rhetoric of uh, of Woodrow Wilson that this would be a just peace, and their understanding of a just peace was fundamentally different from that of the of the Western allies. So naturally, there's strong resentment then when uh, the terms uh, become more widely known. Uh, there's a, a feeling of betrayal. And there's also the very widespread notion that the war was not actually won by the Allies on the battlefield, but rather as a result of treason on the home front. Um, so for the extreme right in, in many of the defeated states, the search for scapegoats, for those who had allegedly undermined uh, the strength of the Central Powers armies uh, in 1918, was a very dominant theme uh, for many years, in fact, for the entire interwar period. This is obviously a very famous thing that happens in Germany, this resentment towards the Treaty of Versailles. So, But are you saying that very similar things were happening for all the defeated powers? Yeah, I mean, there's not a single defeated state in 1918-19 who is uh, satisfied with the terms of the armistice and then the, the terms of the, the peace treaties. So revisionism is a very, very strong theme throughout these states. And in fact, some of the uh, victor states are deeply dissatisfied with the settlement as well. The example of Italy uh, springs to mind immediately, where many nationalists in particular felt that the, uh, the huge death toll on the battlefields, Italy actually suffered more casualties than Britain in the First World War, um, that the prize uh, they were given in Paris in 1919 was insufficient. And uh, therefore, uh, one of the popular rallying cries of the radical right was, of course, that this was a mutilated victory. And to redeem territories that had been added to Italy's uh, wish list since 1915, uh, again, became a very strong theme throughout the interwar uh, period. With this ongoing conflict, were the great powers, did they attempt to do anything to try and prevent them, countries such as Britain, France, United States? Well, the victorious allies of the First World War um, take a very different view on what is going on in Europe at um, at different times. I mean, the United States, of course, the US famously withdraws from uh, European affairs quite quickly after the end of the conflict. The Versailles Treaty is never ratified in the US. Uh, so they take a very uh, hands-off approach to what is going on, particularly in East uh, Central Europe. Um, France, of course, as the probably the country that uh, benefits most from the post-war system established at the Paris Peace Conference does not want to change the status quo because it's uh, it's very much in, in, in Paris's uh, favor. Um, so a weak Germany, for example, is very much in the interest of, uh, of France, where politicians and militaries, perhaps quite rightly, uh, fear German revisionism, particularly uh, of a militant uh, sort, which we then see in the Second World War. Britain's attitude towards uh, Germany uh, changes quite dramatically, actually, in the years after 1919, in the sense that many people in London have a primary interest in, in dealing with a country, particularly economically, with a country where very strong trade links had existed uh, before the outbreak of the First World War. So they increasingly take a softer stance towards Germany, uh, in particular as the largest of the defeated uh, central powers. So there is actually no uh, united front, if you like, among the, uh, the victorious states in 1923. At the same kind of time, there was a lot of violence and tension within um, Ireland. Do you see that as part of this same whole movement? 
Well, Ireland is, is, is a curious case because in some ways it seems to replicate the trajectory followed by uh, much of East Central Europe. Although, of course, the uh, civil war and the, the, the war of independence that had preceded it uh, are never quite as violent as many of the conflicts that uh, occurred east of the, the, the Rhine River. What I think is similar is that we see the beginnings of dissolution of the British Empire, which is perhaps paradoxical because as a result of the Paris peace treaties, Britain grows its empire to its fullest extent. At the same time, it loses Ireland, uh, which is uh, rather interesting and I think paradoxical. So simultaneously, while this is happening, the British Empire stretches out into the Middle East in particular. Um, but we also see the beginning of colonial unrest, um, you know, in India and then in the interwar periods in various territories, including uh, Egypt. So some historians have argued, and I'm inclined to agree with them, that what we see after the end of the Second World War um, has its origins in the, in the period immediately after 1918 as well. So the seeds of imperial dissolution are sown here. And what would you see as the most important impacts or legacies of these post-First World War conflicts? Well, I think there are several legacies. One of them relates to, I think, the, the logic of violence that, that underpins these conflicts, which to me seems to be very different from, say, the situation in, in 1914. So the First World War really begins as a, as a 19th century conflict in the sense that there are very clear ideas that the opponent would be forced to accept certain conditions of peace, however harsh, but no one in Germany or in France or in Britain um, thinks that this conflict will lead to the complete destruction or dissolution of the enemy or, or, or their state. The conflicts that we see after 1918 are very much and deliberately directed against civilians. So, in some ways, this logic of, of total war, which we first see uh, sort of towards the end of the First World War and then more noticeably in the various civil wars and interstate wars after 1918, that logic really continues then on into the, into the Second World War and noticeably the, the conflict on, on the Eastern Front. So I see certain continuities in the, in the logic of violence. I also think that the First World War raises a number of issues without solving them. So many of the underpinning issues about hegemony, about territories, about lost minorities, which are now forced to live in other states, they continue to play a very prominent role uh, throughout the 1920s and really set the agenda um, under the circumstances of economic deprivation after the Great Depression from 1929 onwards, they return to the forefront of politics and, of course, drive major nationalist revisionist movements like the Nazis in Germany or Italian fascism and so on and so forth. So, I think these are very important legacies. Um, then in the Middle East, of course, if you look at the, the conflicts uh, today, it is quite interesting that um, many of the um, groups involved point to the First World War, particularly the Sykes-Picot Agreement um, that parcels out 
the former Ottoman lands of the of the Middle East and divides them up between uh, Britain and France as the, the principal victors, European victors of the First World War. So many people point to that and um, also the Balfour Declaration as the origin of the various conflicts that we're still witnessing in that region today. You suggested that there's a link between this period of violence and then the totalitarian regimes that emerge a bit later on. Were any of the actual leaders of these regimes, these countries, involved in these conflicts? Many of them were still quite young, but of course they um, they lived through this tumultuous uh, time. So if you look at Germany, for example, uh, Hitler... Uh, really uh, finds his ideology, he becomes deeply politicized in this period. Not so much as recent research has shown during the First World War, which was something that we always assumed he, you know, he goes to war and comes back as a as a, as a finished product, as a Nazi. Um, but in reality, it is really the confusion of the post-war period, the humiliation of defeat, uh, the experience of revolution in, in Munich, that helps him to put together this ideology of Nazism. If you look at Mussolini, for example, uh, again, it is uh, really in the aftermath of the First World War that fascism, Italian fascism, is born when lots of people fear that Bolshevism will will be triumphant in Italy as well, that there will be a Bolshevik uh, takeover and so on and so forth. But even, you know, people below that uh, level, if you look at people like Himmler or Heydrich, uh, who play very important roles in the Holocaust, but also in the Nazi security apparatus, uh, it is for them who didn't serve as soldiers in the First World War, it is really the aftermath uh, of the First World War um, that radicalizes them in, in a massive way. So I think if we want to look at the origins of certain mentalities, then the wars after the war are just as important as the years 1914 to 1918, if, if not more important for the radicalization of certain very prominent individuals. On a related note, what does this all do to um, the Jews of Europe? I mean, because I guess all these new nation states would have meant they were minorities in a number of countries. Yeah, it is perhaps not a coincidence that if you look, for example, at the, um, the the Jews of the Habsburg Empire, that they were great supporters of the imperial idea because it was much easier and much more comfortable, much more secure to live in a multi-ethnic state that had become over centuries much better at dealing with ethnic and religious difference than the nation states that succeeded them so for many of the of the jews of europe these years become not only fundamentally disappointing but also deeply dangerous uh, so what we see notably in the western uh, former borderlands of the of the russian empire uh, but also in in galicia are literally hundreds of pogroms, uh, some larger, some smaller, um, are against Jews, against the Jewish population, which is now uh, no longer seen as part of these emerging nation states. So Jews become one of the prime victim groups of um, both revolutionary and anti-revolutionary violence. And a lot of that, of course, has to do with the fact that in the counter-revolutionary imagination, uh, Jews are very much linked with Bolshevism, rightly or wrongly. Uh, obviously, uh, many of the prominent leaders of the political left in uh, Russia, but also in Central Europe, were Jews, but that 
doesn't necessarily mean that every Jew was a Bolshevik, uh, on the contrary. But it is really that, that connection between Bolshevism and being Jewish, which emerges as a very popular theme in precisely this period, with fateful consequences, of course, then a few years later during the Second World War. People often say that the First World War is absolutely pivotal in, in eventually leading to the Second World War. But do you think potentially these kind of later conflicts might be just as much to blame for what happened in 1939? Yes. I mean, traditionally, the idea that was put forward by uh, several historians, notably by a man called George Mosser, a uh, famous historian, he suggested that the, the brutalization of Europe really occurred, particularly the brutalization of Germany, occurred as a result of the First World War. But one could, of course, argue that uh, if it was the war that brutalized the combatants, then why did Nazism and fascism emerge triumphantly in Germany and Italy, uh, but nowhere else, when really the experience of fighting and killing and dying was not fundamentally different for, say, you know, German uh, combatants or British soldiers or French soldiers. So I would argue that it's the combination of, of defeat in the First World War, uh, that breakup of, of empires and revolutions that explains a great deal more about the radicalization of certain combatants and not of others. So I think there's a fundamental difference whether you are living in a defeated state in 1918 or in a victorious one where victory really vindicates uh, at least some of the uh, sacrifices that had been made in the previous four years. So I do think that the post-war conflicts are very difficult to separate from the First World War that enabled them, but they're also quite distinct, distinct in their logic, distinct in uh, the violence that is being used against minorities, against civilians. And of course, civilians also die in very large numbers during the First World War. But we should not forget that during the First World War, the, the principal victims are soldiers. In the Second World War, it's the other way around. The civilian casualties vastly outnumber uh, those of, of killed soldiers. And I think this logic that civilians are fair game can definitely be traced back to these uh, deeply existential conflicts that we see in Europe between uh, the Russian Revolution in 1917 and 1923. I know this is outside the scope of your book, but how similar was the situation that happened after the First World War to what then happened in Europe after World War II? I would say that the situation in 1945 is fundamentally different because defeat is so total, unlike in uh, 1918. So the fact that myths such as the step in the back could develop in the first place um, was largely due to the circumstances of, of defeat in 1918. So in November 1918, not a single Allied soldier stands on, on German soil, uh, which appears to have given credence to the belief that the German army was never defeated in the field, although in reality it was. Uh, the German army was finished in, in November 1918. But to nationalists at home, this seemed to be untrue, and therefore they could blame revolutionaries, Jews, 
minorities within the German Empire for causing that defeat. In 1945, the situation was fundamentally different in the sense that defeat was, was absolute and total. And I think as a result of that, there was no space for conspiracy theories, such as those that would have suggested that the Red Army never really won uh, the Second World War. There's also, because of the Cold War um, that starts very quickly after 1945, relatively little space for revisionism. So unlike in 1918, revisionism is never a major factor in European politics during the entire Cold War, partly because there's simply no space to renegotiate the, the peace of 1945, and partly because there's no desire ever to go to war again. So the fact that two world wars uh, happened since 1914 also helps to appease Europe as a whole. I think the, the very widespread notion uh, that also helps to create the European project, that no such war should ever um, be repeated on European soil, is a very powerful one in 1945, and most certainly isn't in 1918. In Britain, you know, we're now going through the commemoration of the First World War centenary, and I imagine that that will mainly end in 1918. But for the countries involved in these, these kind of later conflicts, will they be continuing to commemorate the centenary for a few years to come? Well, I'm pretty sure of it, because for many of the Eastern European and East Central European countries where these conflicts played out from 1917 onwards, the memory of the post-war conflict is actually a lot stronger, a lot more present than that of the First World War. Uh, say, for example, in Russia, obviously, the, the, the memory of, of the Civil War, but also of the, of the Bolshevik Revolution is omnipresent. The same is true for, for Ukraine, for example, with its very brief moment of national independence. This is a very prominent theme. In, in, in the current uh, conflict with Russia or the Baltic states or, or Poland. Turkey, for example, gained its, uh, its, its full independence as a monolithic nation-state, as a republic in the period after the First World War. So for many of these states, um, the, the post-war conflicts are, are extremely important because this really marks the beginning of independent statehood. It also helps countries like Poland, for example, to avoid the very difficult issue that many Poles fought in, in different armies. Some fought in, in the German army, some fought in the Russian army, others fought in the Austro-Hungarian army. So how can you commemorate this conflict, say, in, in Poland without opening a number of wounds? The post-war conflict by uh, contrast, uh, help to establish the Polish nation-state. Uh, they are also associated with certain victories, notably that over Russia, and therefore much easier to commemorate as success stories uh, than the, the, the deeply divisive events of the First World War. That was Robert Gawarth. The Vanquished, Why the First World War Failed to End, 1917-1923, to has just been published in the UK by Alan Lane. In the US, it's due to be published in November by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. Plus, you can read more from Robert in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which contains his article about the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich. Also in this month's issue, we have pieces on the Viking Great Army, Henry V, the Great Fire of London, the Suez Crisis and plenty more. You can get hold of our September edition in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. 
And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, when you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Each month in the magazine and podcast, we include a feature where we visit a place of historical interest accompanied by a relevant expert. For our September issue, we headed to Apsley House in London, the magnificent home of the Duke of Wellington. On location there were Dr Hugh Davis of King's College London and the historical journalist Helen Carr. Why was the Duke of Wellington called the Iron Duke? Okay, well, most people assume that uh, the Duke of Wellington gets this name from his military campaigns. He's fa- famously known for being a strict disciplinarian, very frugal on campaign, and uh, although loved by his men, seen very much as a very strict uh, commander, and the assumption being that he has acquires this name as a result of that reputation. In reality, it's from much later in Wellington's life, during his opposition to the Reform Bill in the late 1820s, the mob attacks this very building, Apsley House, um, and in response, the Duke has iron bars placed on the window. And from that, he gets the nickname, the Iron Duke. Uh, there's a, Richard Holmes has a good anecdote about Wellington uh, uh, under attack uh, during, the, during one of these mob attacks. Um, it's on, it takes place on the 18th of June, but the anniversary of Waterloo, and he uh, doffs his hat at the crowd and, and says, a, a good day for it. Um, and, and out of that sort of steely reputation um, uh, and the bars on the windows, he becomes the Iron Duke. So it's not really anything to do with his military character. What made his defeat of Napoleon so remarkable? Um, so 
the story of Waterloo is um, at the climax of the Napoleonic Wars in, in uh, 1814. Napoleon is taking, uh, is receiving invasions essentially on all fronts, the British, the Portuguese and the Spanish on the, on the southern front across the Pyrenees uh, and a much larger coalition of the, the Russians, the Prussians and the Austrians and smaller forces as well uh, attacking um, uh, uh, on a huge front from, from uh, the Low Countries through to Switzerland. And despite fighting a range of really quite um, impressive rearguard actions, he, uh, he can't overcome the scale of this, the, these invasions and his marshals persuade him to abdicate. Um, they refuse essentially to fight, there's no, there's no option left. So uh, Napoleon uh, abdicates and he's exiled to the island of Elba, which is a small Mediterranean island off the uh, coast of uh, uh, northern Italy, southern France. And he um, doesn't like it there very much. He, he uses his small um, uh, personal bodyguard, uh, transforms the, the island economy of Elba, but after a few few months there, he's, he's got bored and he decides to chance his arm at a return in early 1815 and try and seize the French throne. So he escapes from Elba with his bodyguard, lands in, in southern France and proceeds to march to Paris, um, gathering as he does so support along the way, um, including huge numbers of troops, and um, deposes uh, Louis XVIII, the restored monarch of France, whose portrait hangs behind us here, um, uh, is uh, forced to flee to the Low Countries. Napoleon is essentially restored to the throne of France, and uh, the uh, Allies, who are, who are all in Vienna, um, deciding on the fate of Europe at the Congress of Vienna, stunned by this, this momentous event, uh, sign the Treaty of Chaumont, which declares that they will not rest until Napoleon, the outlaw, has been deposed. They declare war on Napoleon, not on France. This is about Napoleon, the, the outlaw. And, and so they, they prepare to invade France. They think they'll be able to invade France before the, Fre the French can, before Napoleon can muster enough forces, but they're not able to. Napoleon does an amazing job of assembling a huge force and he proceeds to invade the Low Countries, which are held by Wellington, uh, a, a sort of scratch force of British, Belgian, Dutch, and uh, Saxon troops and the Prussians under Blücher. Um, and thinks that if he can defeat Wellington and Blücher, get to Brussels, he can drive a wedge between the Allies. He can force the Russians and the Austrians, who he really has no chance of defeating. They've got, they're assembling about 400,000 troops between them. Um, and so he thinks that he, if he can defeat these two uh, forces decisively and quickly, then he can drive a wedge between the Allies. And so Wellington is surprised by the speed of which, with which Napoleon invades, also surprised by the route Napoleon takes. Wellington's army is spread out, um, uh, facing an essentially a different direction. And when Napoleon attacks in the, in the, uh, the central position between Wellington's army and, Prus and, and Blücher's Prussian army, um, he, uh, Wellington says, and he's, by God, he's humbugged me, he's got 24 hours march on me. And then a frantic battle takes place at Quatre Bras, a sister battle that's taking place at the same time at Ligny, which Napoleon is attempting to defeat the Prussians. Uh, and Wellington is, is just feeding reinforcements in as they arrive uh, from, from, from the flanking positions. 
and uh, manages to hold off the French attack, but the Prussians are defeated. They're forced to retreat. Wellington uh, so too must retreat as well, and he and, and takes a position on this ridge at Mont Saint Jean, which Napoleon attacks him on the, on the 18th of June, 1815, and it is a colossal battle. It is there's, you've got about 70,000 troops on the British side, about 79,000 troops on the French side. Um, obviously, British, the, the Anglo-Allied side, um, and uh, uh, marching to the to the uh, sound of the guns of the of the Prussians. Uh, are coming to support Wellington about the same size as well. So it's going to be a huge battlefront, and the battlefield itself is tiny. Um, it's only a few miles wide. Wellington takes a very um, defensive position, an impressively defensive position, and Napoleon repeatedly attacks him throughout the day. The slaughter is appalling. Wellington escapes being hit several times himself, um, but a lot of his most senior and trusted Commanders, including Thomas Picton, whose portrait hangs in the next room to this one, uh, are killed. He's shot, Picton is shot through the head whilst leading an infantry charge um, quite early on in the battle. But Wellington holds the line for long enough so that when the Prussians arrive on Napoleon's right flank, Napoleon's forces are spread too thinly and eventually his, his forces collapse and the British are able to, to, to well, the, Anglo-Allied force and the Prussians are able to take the advance. So the reason it's so important, first of all, he wins against the odds. This is, Wellington himself says that Napoleon's worth 10,000 troops on the battlefield. Um, and he does so using his sort of traditional Wellingtonian defensive tactical uh, approach, for which I think he's unfairly sort of been labelled. I mean, he's, he's actually looking at the Peninsula War. He's a very offensive general. He's always going over to the offensive and attacking the French um, uh, 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 and then persuading them to attack him in, in battle and then, and then uh, defeating them. Um, but he has to fight on the defensive and, uh, and holds out for the, for the whole day um, against very, very severe odds. Nearly breaks several times, but um, eventually uh, defeats Napoleon. But more than that, it secures the peace that the Allies have been negotiating in 1814 at Vienna, um, which is to endure for the next, the next 50 years if you say that Crimea, the Crimean War between Britain and Russia is, is the, the break of it, or even longer if you want to take it into the 20th century and look at the, at, um, the First World War. The, out of, out of um, the Congress of Vienna comes the uh, Concert of Europe, um, the famous negotiating um, the, the Congress system where the, the Allies, rather than fighting it out, will, will sit down around a table and try and negotiate uh, their way out of, out of uh, the problems that ordinarily would result in conflict. And this prevents a number of conflicts from really erupting from more than a localised conflict. And this, this works for Europe for, for nearly a century, really, um, with a few uh, conflicts aside. Of course, there are plenty of other wars going on, Britain's colonial wars. So it's important not to think of this as a period of peace. It's a period of peace in Europe, but that's largely because that allows Britain to go and then expand her empire elsewhere. And why do you think his military history is so legendary in comparison to other military heroes of, say, the Seven Years' War? Uh, well, I think it's legendary because 
we're sitting here in 2016. It's 201 years since the defeat of Napoleon. It's sharpening it in, in, in everyone's mind. I say sharp, that's no pun intended, but of course, there's the Richard Sharp novels by Bernard Cornwall. This period is, has been written about in fiction and by military historians uh, to the nth degree. So it's a very popularly known uh, 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 subject. Um, there's a question about whether Wellington was Britain's greatest general. I think he probably, he probably pips Marlborough to the post in that regard, but only just. And so perhaps he is Britain's greatest general. He was also a politician. I mean, he became prime minister in 1828. We talked briefly about him being called the Iron Duke. Um, in reflection of that, how successful was he as a politician? Well, not very. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a military historian, so I'm, I study British military campaigns rather than specifically the generals. Um, so once he, uh, he uh, stops being a commander in the field, my expertise runs rather thin, but um, he certainly isn't a very successful politician. Um, uh, he is a reactionary conservative politician who is opposed to the reform bill, which he ultimately fails to stop. Um, it's that sort of marks his pre premiership in 1828, his opposition to that, and ultimately brings about his fall from power. But I mean, that's the sort of pinnacle of his political career, but he's also foreign secretary during some of the rather less uh, prestigious moments in Britain's history. Uh, he has, uh, his opinions are sought about Britain's imperial campaigns. He's, he's um, skeptical about decisions such as the invasion of Afghanistan in 1839, for example. And he, I mean, we were talking earlier on uh, when we were having a look around Dapsley House, um, that Wellington had all the latest gadgets at the time. There's a, there's a cane uh, in one of the other rooms, which is a, a, also a hearing aid. Um, and he had all the, all the latest gadgets at the time. He's alive now. He'd have an iPad and a, <laughs> an iPhone and presumably other things, I, I assume. But uh, contrast that with the, the penny-pinching of the army. You know, the, he, he stifles reform in the British army. Um, uh, stifles innovation in the British Army, and he's not. Isn't, he's, he alone is not to blame for that, but he has an influence over it. Um, uh, but uh, there's certainly a sense in the British Army that, having defeated Napoleon, it is it is one of the most powerful forces in Europe, um, and, and and capable forces in Europe. And to some extent, that's true. But in reality, it it doesn't learn the lessons of the French Revolutionary period. Uh, the only ones that really do are the Prussians, who create a star system. They have uh, a better approach to the use of all three arms in warfare, of infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Um, their approach is demonstrated with astonishing success during the, the Austro-Prussian War and then the Franco-Prussian War of the 1860s and 1870s, leading to German unification. So the Prussians are the ones that learn the lessons. The Russians are the French and the, and the, and, and the British ignore those lessons. And that's, there's an element of British strategic military history there. That's what Britain traditionally does after war anyway, is, is ignore all the lessons, but it's particularly apparent. And considering how innovative Wellington was as a battlefield commander, how innovative he was with the use of technology of the age, how innovative he remained in his old age, using the latest technology to improve his own 
lifestyle, he at the same time uh, prevented that sort of innovation and reform from really taking root in the British Army. I think that's where uh, uh, some of his key political failings are. And even here at Apsley House is where he received backlash for his mm. political beliefs. Yeah, so the, the, he was attacked yeah. whilst he was actually yeah, residing and, in yeah. Apsley House. And you've got the several bricks thrown through the windows and some of these wonderful paintings have to be sent off to be restored after they get glass embedded in them. And so how did the Duke of Wellington come to acquire Apsley House? There's quite an interesting story behind that. Right, so Stratfield Say is the, is the, the house that he buys with the uh, money he receives in thanks for Waterloo. Um, first of all, worth comparing that with Blenheim, um, Marlborough's palace built as a result of Battle of Blenheim, um, which is incredibly grand, you know, a colossal amount of money spent on it. And Stratfield Say is a much smaller country estate, um, and it's something that uh, he didn't feel the need to, to build anything palatial or grand, so he bought this, this relatively modest, I say relatively because it's still pretty impressive, um, uh, country estate with, with that money. But he was he preferred much more to be in in London. Um, this was where he had most influence, and he wanted a base in London. And Apsley House was originally brought by, bought by his older brother, Richard. Uh, but Richard famously falls on hard times. In 1812, when Richard is Foreign Secretary, he wants to, uh, uh, he, he doesn't agree with the direction that the, that the government is taking in the war. He wants to prosecute it more. Uh, resourcefully and um, effectively and so he's, he tries to stage not a coup but he tries to depose the Prime Minister Spencer Percival and it fails um, he's, he resigns and uh, the uh, Lord Liverpool and, and Castlereagh who's been out in the political wilderness since 1809 are brought back in as um, Foreign Secretary and War Secretary if only he'd waited because on the 11th of May 1812, Spencer Percival becomes the only Prime Minister to be, to be assassinated um, by a, uh, I believe, a Norfolk farmer named John Bellingham um, in, the, in the lobby of the House of Commons. But by that time, it's too late for Richard. He's, he's, to put, he's, he's out in the wilderness. Um, Richard seeks Wellington's support for his, his manoeuvres, and Wellington refuses to give it. And this prompts the falling out, which is never fully then the relationship never fully recovers from. Um, and as a result, uh, Richard has a number of other personality defects. He's quite a spendthrift. He's, he's um, uh, got a shady personal life and um, falls uh, inevitably on hard times. And Wellington buys Apsley House from his brother um, and then commences um, adding huge extensions to it, one of which we're sitting in at the moment. And so how significant was Apsley House as the main home of the Duke of Wellington? How do you think it represented his military prowess, etc.? Well, you see it. Um, we're sitting in the dining room here. We've got this wonderful centrepiece that was uh, uh, bequeathed by the uh, Portuguese government. It's made specifically for Wellington. It's one of the most important pieces of silver work in, in, in Europe, if not the world. Each one of Wellington's victories are represented, just right in front of me, uh, Salamanca. Uh, it's, a, it's a truly wonderful piece of table 
decoration. And it, it comes with a huge service as well. Um, and this is where Wellington, um, until the Waterloo Gallery is added in the 1830s, this is where Wellington holds the famous Waterloo Banquet, which every year on the anniversary of Waterloo he has all of the surviving veterans um, in to, to, to celebrate and commemorate that, that event. And um, there's a painting in one of the other rooms of the Waterloo Banquet with a huge number of people. One of the, one of the most wonderful paintings of Wellington and his men. Wellington giving a speech and everyone crowded around the table. Uh, the artist has managed to get everyone's face into it so you can see who's there. Uh, the king is there. Um, it's, it's, it just reflects the importance of Waterloo to the... Uh, I hesitate to say myth, because it's not a myth, but the creation of the image of Britain as a world-leading military power. And it, it accentuates that, the paint, paintings that hang around here, the, the monarchs of all the allied nations that defeat Napoleon in, 18, in 1815. It really illustrates how important Waterloo is for a, a British memory of this period. Um, and actually, Harris itself becomes a focal point f for that as well, I think. And then, of course, I mean, room right next door to this, you've got all uh, portraits of um, Wellington's key commanders, Picton, Lord uh, uh, Seaton, um, and uh, uh, Thomas Graham, uh, all, all of the people that Wellington held dear at the time, who might have been killed or, or died shortly afterwards. Um, and, and the only painting of the Battle of Waterloo that Wellington himself uh, bought, which is one of the best images, really, describing Waterloo. Um, so, again, you've got that, um, the trappings of, of, of um, British brilliance and military history, the memory of it, uh, uh, made very clear. And then added to that the Waterloo Gallery itself with all of these wonderful paintings from the Spanish Royal Collection. Um, um, I'm no art historian. I'm a bit of a bit of a philistine when it comes to 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 art. It doesn't mean very much to me, but uh, it, it, the grandeur in which they're displayed, the the way in which they're, they're viewed, it clearly is designed to reflect Wellington's glory and Britain's glory as a result. Would you? Should we go and have a look at the painting? Yeah. Do you think? And so this is the Battle of Waterloo by Sir William Allen, um, and it is it is a scene of. It's painted from the position of the French lines. Napoleon is in the foreground. He's he's, he's the biggest uh, uh, represented uh, individual on the, on the uh, painting. You can see it's at the climax of the battle. You can see the French Imperial Guard marching in for their final, um, hopefully for Napoleon's uh, victorious attack into the British lines. You can see in the distance the thin red lines. Um, the tr this is a very iconic image of British, British um, uh, military glory, the, the thin red lines firing their concentrated firepower into the ranks of the, of the Imperial Guard. And then in the, on the left in the background, um, still large for where he is on the battlefield, but, and, but clearly distinctive, is a, a, a Wellington in his uh, his blue overcoat, his uh, cocked hat, and, and, and if you look really close, you can still see his large nose. Um, <laughs> so you've got the expanse of the battlefield, um, just how many 
individuals are fighting on it. It really is astonishing. And so standing in this room of um, fantastic portraits of all of these um, contemporaries of Wellington, um, which one do you, or how do you think that this sort of represents him as a, as a character? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's not just British officers that are represented here. You've got um, uh, General Don uh, Miguel de Lava, one of the uh, key Spanish commanders, one of the few that he actually trusted. Um, uh, uh, you've also got, you've got Horatio Nelson, you've got the Prince of Orange, who is, well, not very effective at Waterloo, but is one of his allies. You've got, of course, Prince Blücher, um, the uh, commander of Prussian forces at, at Waterloo. Uh, all of his key personalities from the British Army. You've got William Beresford, a British officer who commanded the Portuguese Army and reformed the Portuguese Army. You've got General Sir Roland Hill. You've got Lord Seton. Um, all of these people that, that Wellington uh, really valued as, as his subordinates. It illustrates for me that it's not just about Wellington. It's about how the British Army is, is, is the composition of, of its fighting men. It's how important those individuals were to the success of the British and how important the Allies were as well. I mean, they're not overlooked in this, in this, in this image. And um, also behind you, you've got Gerwood, um, uh, John Gerwood, who becomes the editor of his dispatches. And Nelson represented the naval components. You know, it's taking into, into consideration the, the, the entirety of British military success, but also the individuals who helped bring it about. That was Helen Carr with Dr Hugh Davis. Hugh is the author of Wellington's Wars, The Making of a Military Genius, which was published by Yale University Press in 2012. And you can read more from Hugh and Helen in our September edition. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are still on sale for our History Weekend events, which take place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Dan and Peter Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many more. A few talks have begun to sell out, so do head to historyweekend.com to book your tickets while still available. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking about the rise of historical TV dramas. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.